Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Let's jump into the mind of a billionaire. My next guest is Jim McKelvey. And in 2009, he and Jack Dorsey, yeah, Jack Dorsey from Twitter, founded the digital payment company Square. You know that little company that has this little device you attach to the bottom of your phone and you swipe a visa? Yeah, that's that's them. You've definitely swiped your credit card through a Square reader before. Jim talks a little bit here about the reader how it came about, and he also talks about raising his kids, glass-blowing, yeah, glass-blowing, and much, much more. Take a listen as we dive into his recent book, The Innovation Stack, and just into general stuff. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast, and today I have Jim McKelvey. If you don't know him, you're probably not in the tech world or you're just not alive. This guy is absolutely amazing. His latest book, The Innovation Stack, was absolutely brilliant. And that's where I want to start with you. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And this is going to be fun. Yeah, man. So you're a glass blower. What? What? Tell me. <laughs> what the hell, man? Uh, I needed money. When I was a, a recent graduate of college, I had a job that I quickly quit and had no way to pay the rent. And I... Uh, had been a glassblower as a hobbyist when I was an undergrad, and it became a profession. It was just, it was a way I needed to make money of just this crazy skill. And are you still doing that now? I still am. Actually, I'm working on a set of pandemic uh, whiskey glasses, which are these crazy glasses that are a little difficult to drink out of because I was so bored during the pandemic. I was like, ah, glasses are boring. What if I made one that was difficult to use? So uh, we'll see how those go. The prototypes have been pretty deadly. (laughs) All right. There was a section in the book where you bring up Lino Tagliapietra. Correct. Tagliapietra. Yes, Lino. Glassblower. You said if if anybody is a glassblower, this guy is the one that's the master and there is no question about it, you said. He, he is indisputably the most skilled and important glassblower in modern history. And he is the guy whom we all learned from, either directly or indirectly. And, That's nuts, um, man. He's a master's master. Now you had the opportunity to be taught by him in a group setting, right? Yeah. So this was probably 16, 17 years ago now. Uh, it was a while back, but uh, Lino teaches some classes, at least he used to at the time. Um, and I got into one of his classes and I learned a very interesting lesson, which was the lesson of timing as opposed to uh, process. And the way it went down was um, I, I was having trouble making this really basic form. And I uh, was trying to put a foot on a bowl, which is a very simple activity, but I couldn't do it. And I'd had I'd been blowing glass for 15 years by this point. So I was already an accomplished glass blower. And it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was that I couldn't do it consistently. So sometimes I do it and it would work. Sometimes I do it and it wouldn't work. And so what happened was I asked the master how to do this. And this was sort of a big deal because in his class, you were only allowed to ask one question. Mm-hmm. So you just, you know, you can't just hammer this guy with questions. You get like, <laughs> it's a, it's a 10 day class. You get one question, right? And 
I used my one question to ask a really simple technique, and I was expecting him to do what he did for everybody else, which was to demonstrate the proper technique. And mm-hmm. interestingly, that's not what he did. He told me to make a foot, and right as I was about to put it on the piece, he said, wait, wait, now. And then when he said now, I let it fall. And what happened was amazing because the technique that I had been using was the correct technique, but I wasn't getting the timing right. And with glass, if the glass is too hot, it doesn't hold its shape. And if it's too cold, it runs out of that shape. So, so timing's really important. And it was this light bulb moment in my life because I realized that just like in the studio, there were many other places in my life where I was doing the right thing, but I was doing it at the wrong time. And because of that, I was getting failure. Even though though my technique was correct, my timing was off. And I was like, oh my God. You know, and and so I've had six or seven of those moments in the glass studio where this, you know, sort of analogous work stream gives me some insight into something else I'm doing. And I was like, oh my God, that's why, you know, I'm having all this trouble in this other area of my life. So glass blowing's a big part of my life, and I'm still a student. That's nice, man. I I love that story because the timing part was is so key into creating square, right? Yeah, timing was super important with square. And, um, you know, the thing about timing is you don't ever quite know that it's right, and it's something we're not taught. So oftentimes we ignore timing just because it's a hard question to answer. Like, when is the right time to do something? And if you're doing something innovative – almost always the right time feels too early. In other words, you will say, well, the world isn't ready for this yet. And the reason you feel that way is because you're not part of the herd. You're not part of this group that's all doing the same thing. Like we're all buying Bitcoin now. Okay, if you were dumping your life savings into Bitcoin four years ago, you probably didn't get this warm feeling that the world was uh, on your side, right? And- and yet the people who did that are the ones who really, you know, made the big impact. So the reason you feel comfortable is also many times the reason you don't have the market to yourself. So if you're doing something innovative, mm-hmm. I, think, I think I always feel like I'm too early. And sometimes I'm too early, um, but sometimes it's just right. You mentioned, I'm going to quote you in the book, it's, if the timing is right, you're probably too late. Yes. If it feels right, if the, if the timing feels right, if your gut's telling you, oh, this is perfect, well, the reason your gut's telling you that is that you've picked up the cues from the rest of the cattle around you mm-hmm. that, oh, we're all going to turn the herd in this direction. And that's why you feel comfortable. That's why you have that confidence. So the timing is really important. Here's what I had a challenge with as, by the way, the book was awesome, man. Thank you. Really, really, really good. Like I, I already sent it out to so many different people. You got to read this book. You got to read this book. Um, Thank you. Thank you. God. So it was, it was shocking to me that when you said, I think it was in one of the footnotes, you said, by the way, one of the publishers I sent it to didn't want to publish it because it didn't have a checklist. I was like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. hilarious. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what? So uh, yeah. And it was one of the big publishers um, and, and they, they had published one of my favorite books. And I was super excited to show them the book. And the book was done. Like, it was written. And I went to the publishing meeting, and they hadn't even bothered to read it. Dude. And the thing about my book is that, like, a lot of people bluff, and they kind of skim the book. But, like, if you, 
if you read my book, you'll know that it's written in a way that is, I mean, it's sort of irreverent and there's a lot of jokes and there's a lot of, there's just a lot of stuff. You're a funny and, guy for sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm funny on my eighth attempt, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I, the, the first seven were kind of pitiful, but like, give me eight tries and I'll get it. Um, but what happened with this publisher was that I could tell something was wrong. And I was like, did, did you actually read this? And they're like, well, no. And I was like, why the hell are we having a meeting? But and I was like, why didn't you read it? And they said, well, a business title needs a checklist. And we looked for the checklist and there were no checklists. And, and I, said, I said, look, my book is about stuff that hasn't been done yet. So how am I supposed to do that checklist? Like how many items is on a checklist for the unknown? And, uh, oh, Tristan, so they had an answer for me. You know what they what said? What? Five to seven. Five to seven bullets is what we need. He's like, the the, the editor was like, uh, well, we don't want less than five because that's not a good book. But if we don't, if you get more than seven, you'll lose the audience. So it's it's basically (laughs) this formulaic business book crap, which I I I was I was so angry when I left that meeting. But uh, needless to say, I went with a better publisher. But um, but it's funny in in the world how often we want a checklist. And and here's the thing. We only get a checklist if it's a problem that's been solved before. Mm-hmm. So if the problem is unique, if, we, if nobody's figured out the solution, how many items are on the checklist? Well, you know, in Square's case, it was 14 items that we did that had never been done before. In Southwest Airlines' case, it was like 26 to 30. You know, like there are these, it's a different, like you don't know. How long is the road? You don't know. Nobody's walked this road before. As a matter of fact, it's not even a road. It's just a direction. And I was... I was sort of offended, but it was also sort of gratifying to see how ingrained the thinking was in the business press because I hated writing a business book. Like, I did not want to write this thing. I, I wrote my first five, tra- f- five drafts of this book as a graphic novel. So the book was in- <laughs> That's Well, you referred to a graphic novel when you were talking about A.P. Giannini. Uh, the guy who- yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so actually, I uh, if you want to go to jimmckelvey.com, you can download a free copy of the graphic novel version of uh, Chapter Nine because it's Dude. it was so good I couldn't I couldn't not publish it. But yeah, I was so against writing a business book that I did the first five drafts in cartoon format, and the reason the final book has no pictures at all in it uh, has no cartoons in it um, is because I went to show it to Herb Kelleher. I was okay, about to cool. do Herb's chapter, yep. and I told him, man, you're going to love this. I've decided to do the whole thing as a graphic novel. It'll be really fun. And Herb hated the idea. He, <laughs> and, and this was funny because he had a great sense of humor. So he was one of these guys who had always impressed me with how sort of liberal and uh, hilarious he was. He was just you know, like a great thinker and a funny guy and up for anything. Uh, and I don't mean liberal in the political sense. Like he was just like up for it. The Herb was like, yes. And I figured he'd love this idea and he hated it. And he thought that I was sort of disrespecting the seriousness of the topic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was right because when I rewrote the book, it changed the tone because previously what I'd been doing when I was doing graphic novel like I had to have a protagonist. There, there had to be some hero, right? Some guy. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're talking about a guy who you know, started a payments company. Like, I'm not wearing a cape. I'm no hero. 
but you know, to, to pr- portray the story, you make people seem more heroic than they actually are. And, and the hero story is this thing that separates us from humans. For, because like, like I look at a superhumor, a superhero, and I don't sit there and say, oh, yeah, that's me. You know, like even, even Batman, who's basically just a rich guy, like, no, I can't take a punch like that. I can't jump that's off funny. a building. I don't have any of those toys, you know? So it's, it's the wrong format because the real message of the book is that there's this thing called an innovation stack, which mm-hmm. makes normal people able to do these things that you would think it would take a hero to do. Like it's this very, very powerful tool. And if you give somebody a powerful tool, they can do anything. But it's a, it's a book for every man, not for the superhero. And so I'm glad Herb made me, made me rewrite it. Dude, and, and Herb, for those of you that are listening in, is the brilliance behind the Southwest Airlines uh, company. Was that, is that Herb? Yes, Herb Kelleher, founder of Southwest Airlines. Perfect. All right, so the stories that you told were great. I found your humor on point, just so you know. Uh, you're a funny guy on paper, too. Especially when you <laughs> referred to the three, the three of us plus the cat. That you oh just do en- en- enough coding <laughs> to know more enough than the cat. I was like, that's funny, dude. So that was good. Here's my question to you on timing still. When you're referring back to the innovation stack, because I was looking, I was, when I was reading it, I was looking for, okay, where's the checklist? Where's the checklist, right? Yeah, because you want one. You've been conditioned to expect one. Exactly. So I'm reading yeah. through and I'm like, wait a second. There's no checklist to this thing because no. everything can be so different. And so I'm thinking on timing, like as you're building out this whole new road of who knows what, because nobody's done it before, how do you know when you finally have the missing element? Like, because you could have like six. Thank you for asking the easy version of that question. I thought you were going to give me the impossible version of the question and I will answer both. So the easy version is you've solved the problem you set out to solve. Like, you know, you're done when the problem is solved. And that's, that's, you, that's, you know, you've made it through the wilderness. Like you didn't die, right? Your thing works, yep. the problem solved, check the box. The, the, the harder version of that question, which was, I thought what you were going to give me was how do you know when to give up? Like, how hmm. do you know how far you have to go? How do you know yeah. if, if you're just done? And, and, and my answer to that is you don't. Like you don't, if, if, you're, if you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, you don't get that guarantee. You don't get that moment where you sit there and say, oh, well, I can deal with it because it's only, you know, 10 more minutes. Like, like, like I, work out, I work out with a friend of mine and, you know, he and I count down the number of seconds we're, you know, trying to hold the plank or something. And yeah. like if he said to me, Jim, you have to hold in this awkward position for an unknown amount of time, I would probably collapse in a minute. Um, the fact that I can kind of watch the clock, the clock kick down gives me that little extra little bit of discipline. Um, but it's, it's no good because if you, you can't tell somebody that you're, you're doing a, a, a finite amount of work if they're doing something that hasn't been done before. You have to yeah. be able to keep going without the guarantee that it's going to work. So and without knowing where you're going too sometimes, right? Yeah, you know yeah, you, you have, have this direction. goal, but you're like, well, well how, do I, how the hell do I get there? You mentioned – Square violated 17 rules and regulations. Do you often find that companies that are venturing in a direction like yours often find a common scenario? 
Yes, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, and, and in many cases for the wrong reasons. So the, the rules that we were breaking at Square were weird. Some were just artifacts. Like if you look at the laws of any city, there, there's some stuff that it's like, like you're not allowed to uh, uh, you know, have more than uh, uh, four light fixtures in one room for fire code, but you are allowed to have, you know, 14 chickens, right? Okay. You know, uh, but they're, they're these, they're these sort of antiquated laws. I'm not really worried about those. What I'm particularly worried about are the rules that are set up to prevent innovation. So in Southwest Airlines case, you had things like the Wright Amendment and actually uh, several, you know, court decisions that were trying to prevent Southwest from coming into being. In the case of Ikea, I mean, my God, they kicked Comprad out of the country, basically. Um, you know, they set up these rules and these cartels and these, um, in some cases, they're laws. Um, uh, in Square's case, we ran into a, just a bunch of sort of banking artifacts that needed to be either complied with or changed. Some of them we actually had to change in order for Square to exist. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, I, I love the stories you brought up, by the way. I had no idea that the Bank of Italy eventually became Bank of America. I was like, what? This is so yeah. cool. It's funny because like the Bank of Italy was this super cool bank that took care of all the little people. And if you are a Bank of America customer and I'm a Bank of America customer, like you will frequently find like 20 minute hold times and crazy fees. <laughs> and, like I keep banking with Bank of America just to just to remind myself what it's like for every normal American who has to deal with a bank because they're rough. Dude, well. I imagine one of the questions you always you, you would get in doing this and doing a lot of interviews is probably questions like, well, how do you how do you become an entrepreneur? Um, you answer that in the book, where it's like, look, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, because I have a question around this. You mentioned that if you're already doing something that you love and that you enjoy doing and that you're good at, you probably know a problem that you can solve. And and I think that's that's where we can start because you say it begins by putting yourself in a situation where innovation is the only alternative. And I was like, that's such a great way of putting it because we're sometimes sitting in the middle of it like you were. And then it finally like dawned on you. It's like, well, I guess we need to create this thing. Yeah. So here's the thing. And, and it's a fantastic question. I'm going to give you, a, I'll try to make the answer concise, but it's a little bit long. I think entrepreneurship is a dead concept. In other words, the original meaning of the word meant something different than it does today. The original meaning of the word entrepreneur meant somebody who was doing something that everyone else thought was crazy. And that's why Schumpeter coined the term. That's why he needed the term. Today, entrepreneur just means anyone who starts a company. You start a company, you're an entrepreneur. That wasn't the original use of the word. But if you think about what it takes to do something that's never been done before, then um, what you do is you get into this crazy world where there are no guarantees, there's no checklists, there's no expertise. And we have been taught that innovation is this thing we should prize. We have been taught that innovation is cool, that if you're not innovative, you're sort of a loser, right? And my message to the readers of the world is no, 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 no. Innovation is terrible. It's horrible. It's a last resort. It's this thing that you do when you've run out of other better options. Don't sit there and try to be innovative. Sit there and try to find somebody else who's figured out what's been done and do what they did. You know, go get it on YouTube or, or find, like, go to school, get a master's degree, 
Go to a trade show. Go someplace where the people know how to do the thing you're trying to learn how to do and learn what they learned. But, and this is the big but, and this is the reason I wrote the book. Sometimes if you find yourself on that edge of what humanity has done, then there's nobody to copy. You've just run out of YouTube videos. You've just run. <laughs> yeah. Like you're to the edge of what we know how to do as humans. Okay. Now the question is, do you keep going? Do you step across that line into the unknown? And, and that, that's a, I, I'm not saying do it, okay? I'm not saying do it. But what I'm saying is understand that if you do it, here's what it's like on that other side of the line. Because you've spent your whole life copying. You've spent your whole life being taught by people who spent their whole lives copying. And by the way, I'm not saying that judgmentally. I try to copy everything. Like I, I don't do anything original unless I'm forced to that last resort. And so because innovation has been, I think, packaged up and sold to us as this, you know, sort of dessert topping that we're supposed to put on our actions. And let's put some innovation on, you know, it's it, it does a disservice when you're actually in the moment where you need to be innovative. Because in that moment, you're going to doubt yourself. You're going to say, I'm not ready for this. You're going to say, I'm not qualified. Mm. And my answer to you is, look, you're not qualified. You are absolutely not qualified to do something the first time. No human is. All human progress is made initially by an unqualified individual. Right? So true, man. Yeah. I mean, who's the, like, you, 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 you eat some berries in the woods. Are you qualified? No. How do you know you're not going to die, right? Right. Like the first guy who ate the wrong berry ended up dead on the trail. And the next guy was like, uh, avoid the yellow ones. You know? <laughs> he wasn't qualified to do it. Now, if, if you've studied herbology and, and you're a botanist and you know 50 different species of red berries, of course you're qualified. But you know how you got that way? There are a lot of dead people ahead of you. You know? A lot of dead people, yeah. a lot of textbooks. You know, so just because you will, look, here's the thing. We're, a couple times in our life, we're going to run up against that edge, mm -hmm. that edge of humanity. And I don't want all of us sitting on the edge saying, I can't cross it mm -hmm. because I'm unqualified, or I can't cross it because I feel a fear, or I can't cross it because, you know, I'm not ready. I mean, you can choose to go or not go. That's your choice. Mm -hmm. But if you've been told this hero story and you say only heroes can go here, that's a load of crap. Everybody I studied in the book, everybody I profiled, myself included, we're just normal folk who end up in weird situations and then we don't quit for some reason. But that's, that's the story that nobody ever tells you. It's, it's an everyman story. There's no superhero. There's no cape. And uh, there's certainly no superpowers. It's just this, this will to survive and the willingness to go first. The not quitting, it was, it came up at an early time in your life. When I was reading this section, when you were in, I think it was first year of college. Yeah. When you, okay, good. The textbook, I was like, no <laughs> way, dude, no way. And I was like, so I want you to tell us that story because- I think that's where it starts taking form. Like 
you're like innovation stack. You're not even knowing, right? Yeah. So, so I me. ran into some of these principles that I outlined in the book early, early in my life, but I didn't recognize it. Again, it's, it's one thing to live through something. It's another thing to see the pattern that you just went through. And, and frankly, Tristan, I, when I was writing the innovation stack, having lived through it probably six or seven times in my life, I still didn't see the pattern until I went studying history and looking at other companies. And oh. I finally saw the pattern. As a, as a matter of fact, that's the reason, and I don't tell this in the book, but I'll tell you and your listeners, like that's the reason I went to Herb Kelleher was because once I saw the pattern, it was like this light bulb went on in my head. I was like, oh my God. But the problem with the pattern was that everybody that I studied was dead. Like they, they, were, they, they were historical examples. Herb was the only guy who was alive. And so I went down to see Herb and he was very generous. He spent a whole day with me basically talking about my research. It wasn't a book, it was just research. And at the end, I was like, look, I think what, what you lived through is the same thing that I lived through, but you tell me, you know, tell me if I'm crazy. And instead, what Herb did was he said, well, I hadn't thought of it this way, but you've just described what we went through from a different perspective, but you've got something here. How are you going to share it with the world? And Herb mm-hmm. was the, basically the one that made me write the book. Um, got it. Yeah. Got and I it. didn't say that. In the, I never explained that because it was sort of a sideline. It didn't, it didn't fit in. But Herb Keller is the reason there's a book, not just me you know, doing a bunch of personal research. Nice. I loved his 11, because uh, I wrote down, his 11th rule was my favorite one on the innovation stack. It says, no stupid rules. I was like, oh, that's a good yeah. one, dude. Yeah. Her, Herb was <laughs> I love great. that one. Um, but I'll now answer you the question that you originally asked, which was tell you about the first book I wrote, which was when I was yeah. a freshman in, in college. And <laughs> what happened there, I think a lot of students can relate to. Like my, my professor wrote the book and forced us to buy it. And this book was terrible. Like it was it was tragic. It was, it was laughably bad. And, and I was so pissed off that I had to pay the, pay for this. It was like 45 bucks. This was in 1985. It was like a fortune to me. And this book was completely useless and I had to use it. Um, or I had to buy it. I didn't have to use it. And, um, and I was really angry because it was clear that the professor was just forcing his students to buy his book so he could make a buck a copy or whatever his royalty yeah. was. But I was pissed because it was useless. And so I said to my friend, I was like, hey, man, I could write a better book than this. And, and he said, well, then why don't you? And I was like, okay, I will. So out of, <laughs> out of spite, I wrote a book. Uh, I, I wrote a spite textbook. And uh, I mean, you think my jokes are raw in the innovation stack. You should just see what came out when I was 19. It was That's uh, funny. It was All raw. Raw oh and then edited Jim McKevy. Well, unfortunately, that one got edited. Uh, the Wad- no. Wadsworth editing team had a, uh, I mean, I think they ran out of red ink uh, in, in, in Davis, California for a month uh, trying to get through my first couple drafts of that thing. But, what was funny um, was you mentioned that they called up your home and they wanted to publish the book and they thought it was your dad. I was like, yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah, they thought they were publishing dad's book because he had this, you know, he was the dean of the engineering school. He had all this wonderful academic street cred and. No, no, it was his freshman kid that had no cred- <laughs> no no credibility at all. That's very funny, man. I love that part. And then you brought up Herb, and I, I love that part because you're saying this guy we can't reach him by email because he doesn't do email. Yes, no, all right. we can't do a calendar invite because he doesn't do that either. Yeah, right. I'm like, dude, how the hell did you get a hold of him? Finally, you call the man. 
You call his office. Here's how you, well, I mean, he's dead now. So yeah, you would reach him through, uh, you know, uh, through a Ouija board or. No, I, 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 actually, I tell, I tell you how you get Herb Keller, her spirit. Um, read my interview with him. His spirit comes through. Like he is, I, I desperately miss Herb. Like I lost my father and Herb both within a one-year period. And it was, it was a tough year for me. Because those were two men that I really, really looked up to. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I just forgot the question. <laughs> no, I was I was just bringing up Herb and how you got a hold of him finally. Oh yeah, how, how to get you... him, how to reach him? Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I called his office. Called his office, left a very earnest voicemail, told him who I was because I figured he wouldn't know me, uh, and uh, told him what I was doing. And I said, I think what I lived through is something like you lived through, and I'd love to tell you about it. And uh, you know, it took a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden. Like no schedule, just, he just called me. My my phone blew up with a two one four area code, and I was like, "That's Dallas," you know. <laughs> and, That's uh, funny, man. I I just jumped and read it. It was it was one of those moments where I could tell you where I was standing. I was literally in the square office in California, standing next to the copy machine when my phone rang with Herb Kelleher. Whoa. It was a flashbulb moment in my life. I got a call from, like, he was legend, dude. Yes. Yeah, it's like massive. it would be like it would be like Steve Jobs calling me. Yeah, of course, which you yeah. have Steve Jobs stories too. Which let's see if we can yeah. get to. I well, everyone's got Steve Jobs stories, you know. <laughs> what you you mentioned that the your second most prized possession was that little pack of cigarettes that he signed, right? Yeah. So Herb, how do I put this? I was sort of in awe of being able to meet him. And then being able to spend time talking to him. And then we spent a whole day together. Well, not, not a full day, but like, you know, he dropped me off in the afternoon. So it was a pretty good full day. And he'd been smoking the whole time, right? <laughs> he'd gone through like two packs of cool menthols. And, I, and this was, you know, this was not a case where I was just going to, you know, worry about what my sweater smelled like the next day. I was, <laughs> I was, I was ingesting everything I could in Herb's environment, including the nicotine. So my head was spinning by, you know, like adrenaline and, you know, adrenaline, caffeine, nicotine, you know. <laughs> it's like, a good mix, man. It's a good it, mix. You know, plus, you know, I was a little starstruck. And I mean, I was, I was, I was loopy. Um, but, you know, as, as he's dropping me off at the airport, I got this urge to have him autograph something. Mm-hmm. But I'd like filled up every page of my notebook with notes. So I didn't have anything for him to sign. So like, you got to picture this guy's car. I mean, he, Herb was a, he was a, multi-billionaire. Um, he's driving me around. He's driving me personally to the airport in this like piece of crap car with like, there must've been 20 empty packs of cool menthols just strewn about the, uh, the back of the car. So I like, I got to get your autograph, man. And I, and I grabbed a pack of cool menthols. I was like, would you sign this for me? And he just, he did. He was, <laughs> signed it. And the only thing he said, was, he, he, he he signed it with a ballpoint. He did because we didn't have a sharpie. I wasn't expecting yeah. to get an autograph, right? Um, so uh, he invited me to come back to Dallas sometime, and he'd sign it with a sharpie. So <laughs> did you? Did you go back? No, no, no. He got sick. He got he got sick, and then he was in the hospital. I made him some Christmas ornaments. I so I made some I made him some 
some some gifts in the mm-hmm. in the glass studio. But the last the last one I sent him, he sent this really nice note back saying, you know, Jim, I'm getting old and uh, my health isn't very good, and I'm trying not to collect stuff. So he's like, I appreciate the fact that you made me this, but don't do it again. Don't send me more stuff. And I was like, okay. I love that. Yeah, it's a good lesson. You know, it's a lesson from somebody who was like, okay, now's not my time to collect more stuff. Yeah. Damn. Well, what's your first prize possession? Because if that's your second one, you left me lingering. My dad's slide rule. I have my father's slide rule from college. Mm, So leather case, when you used to carry your own slide rule. I mean, nobody knows this anymore. I couldn't even use a slide rule. I barely know what a logarithm is. Dude. You know. Those guys, I mean, they built like all the airplanes you fly in were yeah. built with slide rules. I mean, forget this, you know, finite element analysis and all this stuff. Like, you know, the 737 Max might be crashing, but like the, the original 737s, those are built with guys with slide rules. And those, those things, that's never why they're not there. crashing. They're, yeah, you can over engineer. Dude, I love that. So are you, are you a gifter? Do you like blow up glass stuff and then just gift it out to people or? I, I make Christmas ornaments for very, very close friends. It's the one thing I do. Because, mm. you know, everybody sends you know, those, those cards with the pictures of the kids. And you kind of try to like, whose kids are these? And why do you care? Like, oh, dude, I don't know if it's just you or me, but I don't understand those. It's like, okay, cool. Like, we have social media for that. I, I, I mean, I'm going to get myself in trouble with like every one of my friends who sends me a picture of their kids. But like, you don't need to. Like, if you want me to see your kids, invite me to do something with them because that's I'm right. always looking to, to pawn my kids off on another group of kids. Like, that's the way to do it. Um, Dude, but that's true. You heard my son in the background complaining there. Hey, Jimmy, yell. You'll be on a podcast. <laughs> What's there up, he, buddy? There he is. Um, oh, but, that's funny. You know, uh, so I, I make my own ornaments for that's cool, man. the people that I really care about. And if you get one of these things, then that means I cared enough to spend real time. And I don't give too many of them out. So that's, that's. Well, especially after the herb story, you like have to second, you're like, mm, am I going to give one to you? <laughs> well, the funny thing was I gave one to uh, Jack one year. Yeah. What did he say? <laughs> uh, I found it in the, so we have this swag pile uh, at, uh, at Square, where like you know, we go to conferences, we get all this crap, and we just dump it in a pile. Anyone, yep, any employee one. could, any employee can just come and grab whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found one. Oh in, damn! In that pile, and uh, I've never made him one since. Oh, that's funny. For those people that are that are wondering who Jack is, Jack is Jack Dorsey, right from Twitter, co-founder yeah. of Square. So yeah, that's funny, dude. Did you ever bring it up? It's like, dude, what the hell is this doing no, in the swag no, I'm box, not, bro? I, I didn't say anything. This, this is actually the first time I've ever spoken of it. I've, I've never, I've never mentioned that. <laughs> I don't That's know even how we got, funnier, dude. I don't know how we got on the topic of Christmas ornaments, but it's like, okay, this was I a like lot it. of work and clearly unappreciated. Now, look, I'm not blaming Jack because a lot of times he's out of town and maybe his yeah. secretary opened it and I don't know. But it doesn't matter. He's off the list. Dude, that's funny. That's funny. All right, question. Tell me about, and this is maybe multiple questions in one, but one really short one. Tell me about Anna, Tokyo, and the redesign. Oh, wow. Um, so the, 
I met my wife in Tokyo. And when we were dating, she took me to a store called Loft, which is nothing but baubles you put on your phone. And this is not something that American audience will appreciate because we don't have this culture of like hanging stuff on our phones. Mm -hmm. But in the early days, especially with the flip phones, there was always this little, there was always a little keychain of crap that you would put on your phone. And there's this culture of cute um, where you make things a certain way so that they look sort of precious and small and beautiful. And that's Mm -hmm. when I was designing the square rear. Um, that was my, that was my model. My mental model was I wanted something that I could imagine some, you know, 13 year old girl in Tokyo walking in and buying and hanging on her, uh, phone as a charm because it just looks so right. And so that's why the square reader is as small as it is. And, and it's Mm -hmm. not, um, I actually sacrificed functionality in order to get it that small. Um, but yeah, my wife was the one who led me to Tokyo so that I would learn about the culture of the Japanese phone, and that influenced very heavily the design of the Square Reader. To this day, it still influences uh, those designs. Dude, I, I love that because then that headed into this was this was this was fascinating to me when I was reading it. You went over the design, the cuteness part over the functionality i mean not as a whole but a little bit like oh very much yeah tell me about that decision so that our 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 listeners can understand so if you've ever used the early square reader which is a little thing that's about an inch wide yep uh you'll you'll know that it takes a little practice to get the card to read correctly and the reason it takes practice is because an inch wide um reader is not it doesn't give you a big enough base to swipe the card along so that the card Mm -hmm. tends to wobble Yep. And when this card wobbles, it, ru- it ruins the read. So the solution to that is very simple. You just make a longer base. And I made two units. I made one with a short base, which was really cute. And I made one with a long base, which was, it was kind of less cute. It was okay. It, it was not interesting. Um, but it worked way better. Um, and so we actually manufactured both. And I, I tested them. Um, mm. And I got a very interesting effect when I would test both of them together. They would always prefer the bigger unit because it was easier to use. They'd say, oh, use this one. It, it works better. But if I leave, sometimes the bigger unit was a pain to carry, so I never always, I didn't always carry the big unit, mm-hmm. but I would always carry the little unit because it fit in that little, you know, that little pocket on your jeans that nothing fits in? That's but, where I carried it, dude. I remember. Yeah, that's, that's where I put it, right? So I always had one of these things on me, like 24-7. When I was dressed, I had a square reader on me. So oftentimes, in the early days, I would test it because it's the only thing I had. And the reaction I got when, when it was tested by itself was amazing. People were just blown away that something that small could read a credit card. And because of that, I noticed, I noticed a different reaction in, in the people, which was that these people were, were mesmerized by this thing. And if I made them use the big one, they were sort of like, oh, okay, it reads a credit card. But if I, I got them to use the little one, they'd be like, what the hell just happened? Show me that again. Do that. Yeah. Like, like when you see a great magic trick and you're not expecting to see a magic trick, you know what you want to do? You're like, oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You make that thing disappear again. <laughs> like, uh, you know, pull that Sharpie out of your nose uh, a second time. I wasn't paying attention the first time. You know, they, 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 
they were just spellbound. And I was like, this is what we got to do. Like even at, the, even at the sacrifice of a little bit of functionality, I want people to be mesmerized by our product because one of the things that's so difficult if you invent something new is getting people to notice it. And if you've never mm. invented anything new, you'd think, well, of course they would, but like, no, no, no. People, like you could invent a hover car, okay? This thing mm -hmm. could levitate 10 inches off the ground, never touch the ground. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you could drive it around a city all day and nobody would stop. Like people are just not expecting to see hover cars. If you built a hover car, it would not be noticed. Interesting, dude. Yeah. So I got our hover car noticed by shocking them. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so I guess, I guess the message is if you're, if you're, if you build a hover car, paint it metallic sparkle pink. Make it stand out. Yeah. In a cute way. In a cute yes. way. It, yes, right. <laughs> In a cute way. Pink. Love that. Yeah. How, how much of the design do you think played into Apple deciding to launch it with their iPad eventually and saying, hey, look, this is going to be in this world? Uh, I think it helped. I think it helped a lot because remember that the iPad was launched by Steve Jobs. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Steve was ill, but still in charge at the time. Mm -hmm. And he gave us one of the early, actually, I'm not, I don't know if I'm illegally allowed to say if Apple did or didn't give us an iPad. So I will not tell you if they did or didn't. That's fine. We, I will just tell, we, we'll, assume. we'll assume. I will just tell you that um, Apple's really very, very litigious sometimes. So I won't get in trouble with Apple. Um, but I will say this. Um, what we did was respectful of the Apple aesthetic, which is mm. don't clutter it up with stuff. Don't put more than one button if you can get away with one button. And if you can get away with zero buttons, put zero buttons. And like, don't give me, you know, a dashboard of stuff I don't want or need. Because that's insulting. That's, 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 that's an arrogance that I see too often in products. And what I mean by arrogance is it's, you think your product is so important that I'm going to learn how to handle these 25 switches. Mm -hmm. I need three switches, you know, forward, reverse, park, you know, give me those three switches and a steering wheel and I'm good. You know, I guess I need a gas pedal too, or yeah, an you accelerator. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the arrogance of some designers where they put so many controls on an object that it becomes difficult to use. What they're saying is, my object is more important than your time. Mm. And I don't like that. Oh, dude, yeah. That's interesting. I feel that when I drive certain cars. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm like what the hell is going on here? So I've got a BMW uh, i3, which is mm -hmm. a terrible electric vehicle. <laughs> um, okay. I thought and, you were going the other way for a second. No, no, it's a god-awful terrible car I, I so they were like forty five thousand dollars new but they're okay. so terrible that on the used market you could pick one of these things up for 15 grand oh dude and and i'm i'm rough on cars and i leave them at airports and i'm you know this i'm just not a good car owner so i like cheap crummy cars 
And nice. I, actually, I don't like crummy cars. I like cheap cars. <laughs> let's let's get right to that. I like cheap cars. <laughs> so I got this car. I picked it up for like fifteen grand. It was brand new, almost, you know. But somebody had somebody had bought it, hated it, sold it, took a bath on it. Um, Dude. But it's a terrible car. It's all electric. Okay. You know what the first thing you have to do when you sit down in this thing is? What? You got to start it. Ugh. You have to start it. Now, I also have, my wife has a Model 3 Tesla. I get to drive that sometimes. Mm. When you sit down in a Tesla, it assumes you want to drive somewhere. It doesn't make right. you start the car. It, you, just, you just need to say which direction. I'm either going to go forward Dude. or I'm going to go back. The, the BMW makes you start it because like the BMW engineers were clearly upset at being assigned on the electric, to the electrical vehicle team. Dude. Like it was punishment. So what they built <laughs> was this thing that was this insultingly complex, just poor piece of design. And I could point 50 things out about that car that didn't need to be that complicated and were. Dude. Um, yes. Yeah. Terrible. I agree. So I have, it's, it's I've arrogant. got a Tesla. Yeah. I've got a Tesla. And the very first time I sat on it way back, yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. I was like, because I wasn't at the, I didn't pick it up. My wife picked it up. And I didn't know how to start it because I was looking for a start button. I didn't know it would just go on. I was like, dude, this is crazy. Yeah. If you need to, you know, get some, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels burning, you do need to start an internal combustion engine. You do not need to start an electric battery. That's funny. started. There's potential energy. Go. So tell me about anchoring and conservatism. Conservatism. Tell me about those two things. So anchoring is this idea that we tend to we tend to lump things together with other things that we've learned. And if you are trying to so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm also gonna explain the linguistic gravity here because I think it's important. Good. But it, it goes back to the original conversation that we've had, which is that if you're building something new, it's very, very difficult to get people to understand what you have built. And the way to fight that is you have to get a moment of their attention. And you don't think that's a big deal, but it turns out that actually getting somebody to pay attention, so parents will relate to this. If you've ever tried to like explain something to one of your kids, you'll know that, oh, your kid doesn't listen to you, right? That's, that's yeah. normal. It's not like you're a bad parent. It's like they're a good kid. That's what normal. kids do. They ignore parents. Um, it, in, in, in the world of trying to present a new idea, you are begging, you are looking for a moment when they pay attention. And at that moment, you jam through as much communication as you possibly can. That's why I built the Square Reader small, disturbingly small, because it got your attention a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are all these other you know, tricks. I, so I, I go through a dozen tricks in the book about how to, how to handle these situations. But, but the big message for your listeners is don't be surprised when your new better thing gets lumped into everything else that has pre-existed, when you use a word that destroys your value proposition. So Southwest Airlines discovered this. The word airline 
at the time when Southwest was launching meant expensive travel for rich people. Mm. You didn't have to say anything else. You say, I'm coming to you on an airline. That was the equivalent of showing up with, you know, I don't know what the Instagram equivalent is these days, but like you just getting off an airline, you were rich. You were somebody if you flew because airlines were ridiculously expensive. You know, in today's dollars, you would be talking about, you know, five, ten thousand $10,000 to fly somewhere. In, oh, wow. You know, I didn't know in, that. In current, oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about four hundred dollars tickets, you know, 40 years ago. So do the math. These were very, very elite travelers. And Southwest never used the word airline without prefacing it by saying low cost airline. So they never say we're an airline. They say we're a low cost airline because they had to put the word low cost in front of airline because the gravity of the word airline just meant something you can't Mm -hmm. afford. In other words, hey, I want you to take this trip on this airline, or we have this great deal, uh, you know, we're Southwest Airlines. Well, if just the word airline made me go, well, I don't fly by air. I'm a normal guy. I mean, I've, I've got a pickup truck and a, you know, job in a packing plant. I, there's no way I'd ever get on an airline. But in fact, Southwest was changing the way air travel worked, and they needed that. They needed to sort of depotentiate uh, that word. I love that, dude. And so where does conservatism come in? That people will constantly revert to what they understand. That that we will all tend to to fall back to what we know. I see. You know, as as you're telling me this, I'm thinking, this is why... Hiring an influencer in our current world works. Yes. I, I didn't think about that earlier. Yes. That makes a lot of sense, dude. Yeah. Hmm. That's a note to me. Thank you. There you go. Oh, there you go. Dude, <laughs> I love that. All right. So low prices. I'm looking at some notes that I took here. Low prices, in essence, creates an innovation stack. And I wanted to ask you that. Is that is that would that be part of an innovation stack for certain companies? It almost always is. Okay. And Perfect. the reason for that is it doesn't mean you have to be the low price, but every company that I studied that became a world dominant force mm-hmm. used low price. Low price, and we're talking ridiculously low. We're talking about a third of the cost of your competitors. You know, Square was a third of the cost of what processing was. Southwest was a third the cost of normal airline tickets. IKEA was a third the cost of regular, you know, furniture, um, so on and so on. You know, Bank of America was charging uh, actually a third less than other banks were for similar products. I mean, th- th- these were th- these were. I wonder if there's something about that math. Anyway, whatever. Um, this idea that you have this innovation stack is a it's a competitive weapon and it allows you to do something way, way more efficiently. And then the question is, well, what do you do with that efficiency? Well, Mm -hmm. one thing you could do is you could just make a ton of profit, right? You could charge almost as much as everybody else, Mm -hmm. but then you're really not maximizing what you're doing. You're just, you're just 
playing to the existing market. My message in the innovation stack is if you build one of these things, you get an entire new market to yourself. Okay? So Southwest Airlines didn't have to fight the airlines for travelers. They said, look, keep all your existing passengers. We'll take everybody who's riding the bus. We'll take everybody who's not traveling. You know, 1% of America can, f- can fly in airplanes. We'll take the 99%. Got it. But they have to price it so that the 99 cent, 99% can afford it. So hmm. if, you, if you see one of these companies that is consistently underpricing their product, what you'll find almost always is an innovation stack inside one of those companies. And, and if I ever see a company that does that, I just go up and buy their stock like crazy. Um, ah, because nice. you, you just look at it and you go, wow, I would have paid four times as much for this. And they're charging me this little amount. Okay. Um, they're rare examples. They're, they're rare. You know, um, God, the latest... Last example I would have would be Tesla. Like when Tesla dropped the Model S, I was like, there's no car in the world like this. There's nothing on the planet like this. Yeah. There's no way Detroit is going to build this in the next decade. I was like, gimme, <laughs> you know. But yeah. you, you see these things and you, even if you don't know what they've done, the, the, they're, they're, the pricing is really interesting. And I guess I use Southwest as another example because they were my counterexample also in the book. Because after Herb Kelleher retired, mm-hmm. their new CEO decided that he'd look great in Wall Street's eyes for a decade if he raised prices. So for like 10 years after Herb, they just kept raising their price and raising their price and raising the price and raising their price and raising the price. And raising price. Finally got in trouble with the, uh, with the Justice Department. They got into a lawsuit. They, they had Whoa. to settle a lawsuit for you know, basically price gouging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could tell that pissed off Herb because in Herb's day, every competitor that launched against Southwest died with one exception that was JetBlue. And JetBlue had this weird situation where Southwest didn't open up New York forever. Mm-hmm. And so JetBlue got like 15 years of no competition in New York and copying Southwest's other oh, uh, offerings. Oh, interesting. But Yeah. Very, very interesting. But, but since Herb left, six discount airlines have started flying. Six brand new airlines that would have been totally dead if, if Southwest was still around. Wow. Or I, right. I say Southwest if Herb was still around. Yeah. Herb. Makes sense. All right. Shift really quick because we've only got a few minutes left. You stopped reading nonfiction temporarily. Yes. Except for one book, right? Because I saw it in the footnotes. Tell me more about that. Uh, yeah. So um, my book is about original thinking and doing things that haven't been done before. Mm-hmm. And so when I decided that I needed to write a book, I immediately went on a 100% uh, reading diet. It, I, just, I just cut off all, not just basically no nonfiction, no new books, no periodicals, no Harvard Business Review, no new thought, mm-hmm. like because I was too worried that I would read something and then my brain would just copy what I'd read because mm-hmm. I, I had this original idea or I think it was an original idea. What I did was I, I took all my research to Herb and I was like, have you ever heard of this before? And he was like, no, you need to share this with the world. That's, that's where the impetus for the book came. As soon as 
as soon as I got that homework assignment, I was like, okay, I got to stop taking input here. Like I have to now mm-hmm. wall myself off because otherwise I'm just going to write some derivative of something that I've read or heard. Yeah. I mean, and, mm. and it's infectious. I mean, I, have you ever heard, um, you know, like some phrase in popular culture and you go, I invented that. Like I was the first one to think of that. Like <laughs> I was the first guy to say surfing the web. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, you weren't. Okay. But what happened is you hear it and then it kind of makes sense at some subconscious level. And then mm-hmm. two weeks later, your conscious mind gets a hold of it. And then you think it's your idea. Well, like that's infectious. So in order to have an original book, mm-hmm. I had to basically take away all, 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 all chances for me to copy. Uh, and what are you, are you back to reading nonfiction, oh God, fiction, yeah. everything? Devouring. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad you at least read one, the OKRs, right? The, the, uh, yeah, so measure, John measure Dorr, What Matters. Yeah. John Doerr wrote Measure What Matters, and he was published with my publisher, and it was late enough in my book that I had the first several drafts out, so I was like, oh, okay, I can let myself have one. That you is know? a good book, man. That is a very good book. Yeah. I he like was that good. one. I like John. I like that. All right. Last question for you. How do you now transfer what you've learned emotionally, mentally, all that over to your kids as, as they're growing? How do you do that? Wow. Um, I thought you were going to say to others, and my answer was podcasting. Um, no, I don't do podcasts. I, I do yours, but I, I, I don't know how. Um, to my children, I don't know. I think part of it is living an example, letting mm-hmm. my si- so so I'll give you an example. Um, I never have to work another day in my life. As a matter of fact, me nor my kids nor my grandkids or grandkids grandkids. Like I could I could I could mess up probably five generations of McKelvey's dude right now. Don't, but yes, you can. Yeah, I mean, like I've got the bank to do it, right? So um so here's what we're doing. I mean, yeah, ask me in 20 years if it worked. Um, we're not giving our kids any money. And they know that. Well, they're young, but at some point they will know that they're not going to get rich. They have rich parents. They are not rich. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, kid. Um, but my attitude towards that is, look, if my kids want to be rich, the only way you can really be rich, in my opinion, is to earn your own money. Because then you can do with it whatever you want. Like if I want to go out and do stupid stuff, and I do some pretty stupid stuff these days, but I could do that because I, I earned it, okay? Yeah. Um, if you inherit it, you're not rich. You're, you've got a lot of money, but you also have this sort of guilt that comes with it. Like I didn't really earn this, and it was great. my grandfather's, and I better not screw it up. There's, like this, there's yeah. this, like this thing in the back of your head going, don't screw it up, don't screw it up, don't screw it up. You know. So one of the hmm. things that I'm doing and by the way, parents, if you happen to be rich, I'm not saying this is going to work. I'm telling you it's an experiment and we'll find out. You know, I've got a, I've got a sample set of two. Um, <laughs> but I believe very strongly that you should let the kids be who they are going to be. And don't force them to be stewards of money. Um, you know, one of Buffett's kids... Uh, rejected most of the money. And I thought that was really cool um, because 
that just wasn't him and he didn't want to be in that world. And so, you know, don't force your kid to be rich. Um, but then the other thing is let them see what real work is. Uh, I, I let my kids see me struggle. I let my kids see me fail. I let my kids see me, well, I mean, do the stuff that normal people do, which is like, oops, that didn't work. Ouch. You know, um, and maybe they'll get the lesson or maybe they won't, you know, it, it's, it's a weird set of, it, it's a weird set of circumstances that, that, that makes us who we are. And the parent is just one input. So I don't believe I get to control it. I'm, I'm just trying to, God, trying to not do damage. Maybe that'd be the best way to put it. You know, I like that. I think what, what you're, what I got was just by, by living the, living the life that you want them to lead as, as human beings. I, I hope so. But I mean, I'm not the guy to ask because my kids are four years old and 11 years old. So, <laughs> well, dude, the 11 year old at this point, you're starting to see that. Yeah. That. He's wonderful. He's fantastic. Yeah. And the, you know, the four year old's great too, but like, well, yeah, we're starting to see I, I'm, my, my son is, uh, is, is, he's wonderful. I love spending time with him and hopefully that's, that's some, s- some good parenting, at least, you know, his mother seems like a really good parent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good compliment, buddy. There that's go. a good compliment. I love it. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate it, man. Thanks for doing this and, and jumping in. Great. Always a pleasure. Amazing book. Seriously. I've already gifted it two times in the last week. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's 1% of my weekly sales. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this silly book for some reason, like it never had a spike cause we launched during COVID, but the darn thing sells a couple hundred copies every week and it never had a spike and it's, it's never had a drop. It's, it's been this weirdly steady thing. Uh, the publisher, said it's very strange for a book to be sort of in that, you know, sort of classic little bit of sales every, every, it's been that way. Oddly, we can't explain it. So did we interview a lot of people here, a lot of authors too, in the business world, right? For success magazine. And this is the first time I've read a book like this. I mean, I took copious notes and I was waiting, like I told you for the innovation stack. I was like, okay, give me the, uh, innovation yeah, stack. here's the me. list. <laughs> and I was There's like, wait a checklist. second, you're telling me that every time it's different? <laughs> I want my 15 bucks back. Yeah. Oh, that uh, was the cool part though. That was the cool part. So thank you for writing the book, buddy. We appreciate you. Tristan, thank you for helping me get the word out and all the best to your listeners. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.